Lords and Ladies by Terry Pratchett. Read by Nigel Planer. When does it start? There are very few starts. Oh, some things seem to be beginnings. The curtain goes up, the first pawn moves, the first shot is fired, probably at the first pawn. But that's not the start. The play, the game, the war, is just a little window on a ribbon of events that may extend back thousands of years. The point is there's always something before. It's always a case of now read on. Much human ingenuity has gone into finding the ultimate before. The current state of knowledge can be summarised as thus. In the beginning, there was nothing which exploded. Other theories about the ultimate start involve gods creating the universe out of the ribs, entrails and testicles of their father. Gods like a joke as much as anyone else. There are quite a lot of these. They're interesting, not for what they tell you about cosmology, but for what they say about people. Hey, kids, which part do you think they made your town out of? But this story starts on the disc world, which travels through space on the back of four giant elephants, which stand on the shell of an enormous turtle and is not made of any bits of anyone's bodies. But when to begin? Thousands of years ago, when a great hot cascade of stones came screaming out of the sky, gouged a hole out of the Copperhead Mountain and flattened the forest for ten miles around? The dwarfs dug them up because they were made of a kind of iron, and dwarfs, contrary to general opinion, love iron more than gold. It's just that although there's more iron than gold, it's harder to sing songs about. Dwarfs love iron. And that's what the stones contained. The love of iron. A love so strong that it drew all iron things to itself. The three dwarfs who found the first of the rocks only got free by struggling out of their chainmail trousers. Many worlds are iron at the core, but the disc world is as coreless as a pancake. On the disc, if you enchant a needle, it will point to the hub, where the magical field is strongest. It's simple. Elsewhere, on worlds designed with less imagination, the needle turns because of the love of iron. At the time, the dwarfs and the humans had a very pressing need for the love of iron. And now, spool time forward for thousands of years to a point fifty years or more before the ever-moving now, to a hillside and a young woman running. Not running away from something, exactly, or precisely running towards anything, but running just fast enough to keep ahead of a young man, although, of course, not so far ahead that he'll give up. Out from the trees and into the rushy valley where, on a slight rise in the ground, are the stones. They're about man height and barely thicker than a fat man. And somehow they don't seem worth it. If there's a stone circle you mustn't go near, the imagination suggests, then there should be big brooding trilithons and ancient altar stones screaming with the dark memory of blood-soaked sacrifice. Not these dull stubby lumps. It will turn out that she was running a bit too fast this time, and in fact the young man in laughing pursuit will get lost and fed up and will eventually wander off back to the town alone. 
She does not, at this point, know this, but stands absent-mindedly adjusting the flowers twined in her hair. It's been that kind of afternoon. She knows about the stones. No one ever gets told about the stones, and no one is ever told not to go there, because those who refrain from talking about the stones also know how powerful is the attraction of prohibition. It's just that going to the stones is not what we do, especially if we're nice girls. But what we have here is not a nice girl, as generally understood. For one thing, she's not beautiful. There's a certain set to the jaw and arch to the nose that might, with a following wind and in the right light, be called handsome by a good-natured liar. Also, there's a certain glint in her eye, generally possessed by those people who have found that they are more intelligent than most people around them, but who haven't yet learnt that one of the most intelligent things they can do is prevent said people ever finding this out. Along with the nose, this gives her a piercing expression which is extremely disconcerting. It's not a face you can talk to. Open your mouth and you're suddenly the focus of a penetrating stare which declares what you're about to say had better be interesting. Now the eight little stones on their little hill are being subjected to the same penetrating gaze. Hmm. And then she approaches cautiously. It's not the caution of a rabbit about to run. It's closer to the way a hunter moves. She puts her hands on her hips, such as they are. There's a skylark in the hot summer sky. Apart from that, there's no sound. Down in the little valley and higher in the hills, grasshoppers are sizzling and bees are buzzing and the grass is alive with micro-noise. But it's always quiet around the stones. I'm here, she says. Show me. A figure of a dark-haired woman in a red dress appears inside the circle. The circle is wide enough to throw a stone across, but somehow the figure manages to approach from a great distance. Other people would have run away, but the girl doesn't, and the woman in the circle is immediately interested. So, you're real, then? Of course. What is your name, girl? Esmeralda. And what do you want? I don't want anything. Everyone wants something... Otherwise, why are you here? I just wanted to find out if he was real. To you, certainly. You have good sight. The girl nods. You could bounce rocks off her pride. And now you have learned this, said the woman in the circle. What is it you really want? Nothing. Really? Last week you went all the way up to the mountains above Copperhead to talk to the trolls. What did you want from them? The girl put her head on one side. How do you know I did that? It's at the top of your mind, girl. Anyone could see it. Anyone with good sight. I shall be able to do that one day, said the girl smugly. Who knows? Possibly. What did you want from the trolls? I wanted to talk to them. Do you know they think time goes backwards? "'Because you can see the past,' they say, and the woman in the circle laughed. "'But they are like the stupid dwarfs. "'All they are interested in is pebbles. "'There is nothing of interest in pebbles.' "'The girl gives a kind of one-shoulder uni-shrug, "'as if indicating that pebbles may be full of quiet interest. "'Why can't you come out from between the stones?' "'There was a distinct impression that this was the wrong question to have asked. "'The woman carefully ignored it. I can help you find more than pebbles, she said. You can't come out of the circle, can you? Let me give you what you want. I can go anywhere, but you're stuck in the circle, said the girl. Can you go anywhere? 
When I'm a witch, I shall be able to go anywhere. But you'll never be a witch. What? They say you won't listen. They say you can't keep your temper. They say you have no discipline. The girl tossed her hair. Oh, you know that too, do you? Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? But I mean to be a witch, whatever they say. You can find things out for yourself. You don't have to listen to a lot of daft old ladies who've never had a life. And, Circle Lady, I shall be the best witch there ever has been. With my help, I believe you may, said the woman in the circle. Your young man is looking for you, I think, she added mildly. Another of those one-shoulder shrugs, indicating that the young man can go on looking all day. I will, will I? You could be a great witch. You could be anything, anything you want. Come into the circle. Let me show you. The girl takes a few steps forwards, and then hesitates. There is something about the woman's tone. The smile is pleasant and friendly, but there is something in the voice too desperate, too urgent, too hungry. But I'm learning a lot. Step through the stones, now. The girl hesitates again. How do I know? Circle time is nearly over. Think of what you can learn, now. But step through. But that was a long time ago in the past, which is another country. And besides, the bitch is older. A land of ice. Not winter, because that presumes an autumn and perhaps one day a spring. This is a land of ice, not just a time of ice. And three figures on horseback, looking down the snow-covered slope to a ring of eight stones. From this side, they look much bigger. You might watch the figures for some time before you realised what it was about them that was strange. Stranger, that is, than their clothing. The hot breath of their horses hung in the freezing air, but the breath of the riders did not. And this time, said the figure in the centre, a woman in red, there will be no defeat. The land will welcome us. It must hate humans now. But there were witches, said one of the other riders. I remember the witches. Once, yes, said the woman, but now poor things, poor things, scarce any power in them at all. And suggestible, pliant minds, I've crept about, my dearie, I've crept about of the nights. I know the witches they have now. Leave the witches to me. I remember the witches, said the third rider insistently. Minds like, like metal. Not any more, I tell you. Leave them to me. The queen smiled benevolently at the stone circle. And then you can have them, she said. For me, I rather fancy a mortal husband, a special mortal, a union of the worlds, to show them that this time we mean to stay. The king will not like that. And when has that ever mattered? Never, lady. The time is right, Lankin. The circles are opening. Soon we can return. The second rider leaned on the saddle horn. And I can hunt again, it said. When? When? Soon, said the queen. Soon. It was a dark night, the kind of darkness which is not simply explainable by absence of moon or stars, but the darkness that appears to flow in from somewhere else, so thick and tangible that maybe you could snatch a handful of air and squeeze the night out of it. It was the kind of darkness which causes sheep to leap fences and dogs to skulk in kennels. Yet the wind was warm, and not so much strong as loud. It howled around the forests and wailed in chimneys. 
On nights like this, normal people will pull the covers over their head, sensing that there were times when the world belonged to something else. In the morning it would be human again. There would be fallen branches, a few tiles off the roof, but human. For now, better to snuggle down. But there was one man awake. Jason Ogg, master blacksmith and farrier, pumped the bellows of his forge once or twice for the look of the thing, and sat down on his anvil again. It was always warm in the forge, even with the wind whistling around the eaves. He could shoe anything, could Jason Ogg. They'd brought him an ant once for a joke, and he'd sat up all night with a magnifying glass and an anvil made out of the head of a pin. The ant was still around somewhere. Sometimes he could hear it clatter across the floor. But tonight, well, tonight in some way he was going to pay the rent. Of course he owned the forge. It had been passed down for generations, but there was more to a forge than bricks and mortar and iron. He couldn't put a name to it, but it was there. It was the difference between being a master farrier and just someone who bent iron in complicated ways for a living. And it had something to do with iron, and something to do with being allowed to be very good at his job. Some kind of rent. One day his dad had taken him aside and explained what he had to do on nights like this. There'd be times, he said, there'd be times, and he'd know when they were without being told. There'd be times when someone would come with a horse to shoe. Make them welcome. Shoe the horse. Don't let your mind wander, and try not to think about anything except horseshoes. He'd got quite used to it now. The wind rose, and somewhere there was the creak of a tree going over. The latch rattled. Then there was a knock at the door. Once. Twice. Jason Ogg picked up his blindfold and put it on. That was important, his dad had said. It saved you getting distracted. He undid the door. Uh, evening, my lord, he said. A wild night. He smelled wet horse as it was led into the forge, hooves clattering on the stones. There's <laughs> tea brewing on the forge, and our drain done us some biscuits in the tin with a present from Ark Morpork on it. Thank you. I trust you are well? Oh, yes, my lord. I've done the shoes already. Won't hold you up long. <laughs> I know you're, you're very busy like. He heard the click-click of footsteps across the floor to the old kitchen chair reserved for customers, or at least for the owners of customers. Jason had laid the tools and the horseshoes and the nails ready to hand on the bench beside the anvil. He wiped his hands on his apron, picked up a file and set to work. He didn't like cold shoeing, but he'd shod horses ever since he was ten. He could do it by feel. He picked up a rasp and set to work. And he had to admit it, it was the most obedient horse he'd ever encountered. Pity he'd never actually seen it. It'd be a pretty good horse, a horse like that. His dad had said, don't try to sneak a look at it. He heard the glug of the teapot, and then the gling-glong sound of a spoon being stirred, and then the clink as the spoon was laid down. Never any sound, his dad had said, except when he walks and talks. You'll never hear him make a sound. No smacking of lips, stuff like that. No breathing. Oh, and another thing. When you take the old shoes off, don't chuck them in the corner for to go to melt with the other scrap. Keep them separate. Melt them separate. Keep a pot special for it and make the new shoes out of that metal. Whatever else you do, never put that iron on another living thing. In fact, Jason had saved one set of the old shoes for pitching contests at the various village fairs and never lost when he used them. He won so often that it made him nervous. And now they spent most of their time hanging on a nail behind the door. Sometimes the wind rattled the window frame or made the coals crackle. 
A series of thumps and a squawk a little way off suggested that the chicken house at the end of the garden had parted company with the ground. The customer's owner poured himself another cup of tea. Jason finished one hoof and let it go. Then he held out his hand. The horse shifted its weight and raised the last hoof. This was a horse in a million, perhaps more. Eventually he had finished. Funny that. It never seemed to take very long. Jason had no use for a clock, but he had a suspicion that a job which took the best part of an hour was at the same time over in a matter of minutes. Uh, there, he said, tis done. Thank you. I must say, these are very good biscuits. How do they get the bits of chocolate in? Uh, dunno, my lord, said Jason, staring fixedly at the inside of his blindfold. I mean, the chocolate ought to melt out when they're baked. How do they do it, do you think? Tis probably a craft secret, said Jason. I never asks that kind of question. Good man, very wise. I must... He had to ask, if only so he'd always know that he had asked. Um, my lord? Yes, Mr. Og? I, uh, I has got one question. Yes, Mr. Og? Jason ran his tongue over his lips. Eh, uh, if I were to take the blindfold off, what did I see? There, it was done now. There was a clicking sound on the flagstones and a change in the air movement which suggested to Jason that the speaker was now standing in front of him. Are you a man of faith, Mr. Og? Jason gave this some swift consideration. Lankra was not knee-deep in religions. There were the nine-day wanderers and the strict Ophlians, and there were various altars to small gods of one sort or another tucked away in distant clearings. He'd never really felt the need, just like the dwarfs. Iron was iron, and fire was fire. Start getting metaphysical, and you were scraping your thumb on the bottom of your hammer. What do you really have faith in, right at this moment? He's inches away, Jason thought. I could reach out and touch. There was a smell. It wasn't unpleasant. It was hardly anything at all. It was the smell of air in old forgotten rooms. If centuries could smell, then old ones would smell like that. Mr. Og? Jason swallowed. Well, my lord, he said, right now, um, I really believe in this blindfold. Good man. Good man. And now I must be going. Jason heard the latch lift. There was a thud as the doors scraped back, driven by the wind, and then there was the sound of hooves on the cobbles again. Your work, as always, is superb. Oh, thank you, my lord. I speak as one craftsman to another. Thank you, my lord. We will meet again. Yes, my lord. When next my horse needs shoeing. Yes, my lord. Jason closed the door and bolted it, although there was probably no point when you thought about it. But that was the bargain. You shod anything they brought to you, anything, and the payment was that you could shoe anything. There had always been a smith in Lancre, and everyone knew the smith in Lancre was a very powerful smith indeed. It was an ancient bargain, and it had something to do with iron. The wind slackened. Now it was a whisper around the horizons as the sun rose. This was the octarine grass country, good growing country, especially for corn. And here was a field of it, waving gently between the hedges. Not a big field, not a remarkable one, really. It was just a field with corn in it, except, of course, during the winter, when there were just pigeons and crows in it. The wind dropped. 
The corn still waved. They weren't the normal swells of the wind. They spread out from the centre of the field like ripples from a dropped stone. The air sizzled and was filled with an angry buzzing. Then, in the centre of the field, rustling as it bent, the young corn lay down, in a circle. And in the sky, the bees swarmed and teemed, buzzing angrily. It was a few weeks to midsummer. The kingdom of Lancre dozed in the heat, which shimmered on the forests and the fields. Three dots appeared in the sky. After a while they became identifiable as three female figures on broomsticks, flying in a manner reminiscent of the famous three plaster flying ducks. Observe them closely. The first one, let us call her the leader, flies sitting bolt upright in defiance of air resistance and seems to be winning. She has features that would generally be described as striking or even handsome, but she couldn't be called beautiful, at least by anyone who didn't want their nose to grow by three feet. The second is dumpy and bandy-legged, with a face like an apple that's been left for too long and an expression of near-terminal good nature. She's playing a banjo, and until a better word comes to mind, singing. It is a song about a hedgehog. Unlike the broomstick belonging to the first figure, which is more or less unburdened, except for a sack or two, this one is overladen with things like fluffy purple toy donkeys, corkscrews in the shape of small boys urinating, bottles of wine in straw baskets, and other international cultural items. Nestling among them is the smelliest and most evil-minded cat in the world, currently asleep. The third, and definitely the last broomstick rider, is also the youngest. Unlike the other two, who dress like ravens, she wears bright, cheerful clothes which don't suit her now, and probably didn't even suit her ten years ago. She travels with an air of vague, good-natured hopefulness. There are flowers in her hair, but they're wilting slightly, just like her. The three witches pass over the borders of Lancre the kingdom, and very shortly afterwards over the town of Lancre itself. They begin their descent over the moorlands beyond, eventually touching down near a standing stone which happens to mark the boundaries of their territories. They're back, and everything's all right again, for about five minutes. There was a badger in the privy. Granny Weatherwax poked it with her broom until it got the message and lumbered off. Then she took down the key which hung on the nail beside the copy of last year's almanac and book of days and walked up the path to her cottage. A whole winter away. There'd be a lot to do. Go and pick the goats up from Mr. Skindle, get the spiders out of the chimney, fish the frogs out of the well, and generally get back into the business of minding everyone's business for them, because there'd be no telling what business people would get up to without a witch around. But she could afford an hour with her feet up first. There was a robin's nest in the kettle, too. The birds had got in through a broken window pane. She carefully took the kettle outside and wedged it over the door so as to be safe from weasels, and boiled up some water in a saucepan. Then she wound up the clock. Witches didn't have much use for clocks, but she kept it for the tick. Well, mainly for the tick. It made a place seem lived in. It had belonged to her mother, who'd wound it up every day. It hadn't come as a surprise to her when her mother died, firstly because Esme Weatherwax was a witch, and witches have an insight into the future, and secondly because she was already pretty experienced in medicine and knew the signs. So she'd had a chance to prepare herself, and hadn't cried at all until the day afterwards, when the clock stopped right in the middle of the funeral lunch. She dropped a tray of ham rolls and then had to go and sit by herself in the privy for a while so that no one would see. Time to think about that sort of thing now. Time to think about the past. The clock ticked, the water boiled. Granny Weatherwax fished a bag of tea from the meagre luggage on her broomstick and swilled out the teapot. The fire settled down. The clamminess of a room unlived in for months was gradually dispelled. The shadows lengthened. 
Time to think about the past. Witches have an insight into the future. The business she'd have to mind soon enough would be her own. And then she looked out of the window. Nanny Og balanced carefully on a stool and ran a finger along the top of the dresser. Then she inspected the finger. It was spotless. Ooh, she said. Seems to be moderately clean. The daughters-in-law shivered with relief. So far, Nanny added. The three young women drew together in their mute terror. Her relationship with her daughters-in-law was the only stain on Nanny Og's otherwise amiable character. Sons-in-law were different. She could remember their names, even their birthdays, and they joined the family like overgrown chicks creeping under the wings of a broody bantam. And grandchildren were treasures, every one. But any woman incautious enough to marry an Og's son might as well resign herself to a life of mental torture and nameless domestic servitude. Nanny Og never did any housework herself, but she was the cause of housework in other people. She got down from the stool and beamed at them. Hmm, you kept the place quite nice, she said. Well done. Her smile faded. Under the bed in the spare room, she said. Haven't looked under there yet, have I? Inquisitors would have thrown Nanny Og out of their ranks for being too nasty. She turned as more members of the family filed into the room, and her face contorted into the misty grin with which she always greeted grandchildren. Jason Og pushed his youngest son forward. This was Pusey Og, aged four, who was holding something in his hands. "'What you got there, then?' said Nanny. "'You can show your nan.' Pusey held it up. "'My word, you have been!' It happened right there, right then, right in front of her. And then there was Magrat. She'd been away eight months. Now panic was setting in. Technically she was engaged to the king, Therence II. Well, not exactly engaged as such. There was, she was almost sure, a general unspoken understanding that engagement was a definite option. Admittedly, she'd kept on telling him that she was a free spirit and definitely didn't want to be tied down in any way, and of course this was the case, more or less, but... But, well, eight months. Anything could have happened in eight months. She should have come straight back from Genua, but the other two had been enjoying themselves. She wiped the dust off her mirror and examined herself critically. Not a lot to work with, really. No matter what she did with her hair, it took about three minutes for it to tangle itself up again, like a garden hosepipe left in a shed. Which, no matter how carefully coiled, will always uncoil overnight and tie the lawnmower to the bicycles. She'd brought herself a new green dress but what had looked exciting and attractive on the plaster model looked like a furled umbrella on a magrat. Whereas Verence had been here, reigning, for eight months. Of course, Lankra was so small that you couldn't lie down without a passport, but he was a genuine king, and genuine kings tended to attract young women looking for career opportunities in the queening department. She did her best with the dress and dragged a vengeful brush through her hair. Then she went up to the castle. Guard duty at Lankra Castle was the province of anyone who didn't have much of anything else to do at the moment. On duty today was Nanny Og's youngest son, Sean, in ill-fitting chainmail. He brought himself to what he probably thought was attention, as Magrat pattered past, and then dropped his pike and hurried after her. Ah, uh, can you slow down a bit, please, miss? He overtook her, ran up the steps to the door, picked up a trumpet that was hanging from a nail by a bit of string, and blew an amateurish fanfare. Then he looked panicky again. Wait right there, miss. Uh, miss, um, right there. Count to five and then knock. 
he said, and darted through the door, slamming it behind him. Magrat waited, and then tried the knocker. After a few seconds, Sean opened the door. He was red in the face and had a powdered wig on back to front. Er, uh, yes, he drawled, and tried to look like a butler. You've still got your helmet on under the wig, said Magrat helpfully. Sean deflated, his eyes swivelled upwards. Everyone at the haymaking, said Magrat. Sean raised his wig, removed the helmet, and put the wig back. Then he distractedly put the helmet back on top of the wig. "'Yes, and Mr Spriggins the butler is in bed with his trouble again,' said Sean. "'There's only me, miss, and I've got to get the dinner started before I'm off home "'because Mrs Scorbick is poorly.' "'You don't have to show me in,' said Magrat. "'I do know the way.' "'No, it's got to be done proper,' said Sean. "'You just keep moving slow and leave it to me.' He ran on ahead and flung open some double doors. "'Miss Magrat, garlic!' and scurried towards the next set of doors. By the third pair he was out of breath, but he did his best. "'Miss Magrat, garlic! His Majesty the... Oh, bugger, now where's he gone?' The throne room was empty. They eventually found Verence the Second, King of Lancre, in the stable yard. Some people are born to kingship, some achieve kingship, or at least arch-generalissimo father of his countryship. But Verence had kingship thrust upon him. He hadn't been raised to it, and had only arrived at the throne by way of one of those complicated mix-ups of fraternity and parentage that are all too common in royal families. He had, in fact, been raised to be a fool, a man whose job it was to caper and tell jokes and have custard poured down his trousers. This had naturally given him a grave and solemn approach to life, and a grim determination never to laugh at anything ever again, especially in the presence of custard. In the role of ruler, then, he had started with the advantage of ignorance. No one had ever told him how to be a king, so he had to find out for himself. He'd sent off for books on the subject. Verence was a great believer in the usefulness of knowledge derived from books. He had formed the unusual opinion that the job of a king is to make the kingdom a better place for everyone to live in. Now he was inspecting a complicated piece of equipment. It had a pair of shafts for a horse, and the rest of it looked like a cart full of windmills. He glanced up and smiled in an absent-minded way. "'Oh, hello,' he said. "'All back safe, then?' "'Um,' Magrat began. "'It's a patent crop rotator.' said Verence. He tapped the machine. Just arrived from Ankh Morpork. The wave of the future, you know. I've really been getting interested in agricultural improvement and soil efficiency. We'll really have to get cracking on this new three-field system. Magrat was caught off balance. But, uh, I think we've only got three fields, she said. And there isn't much soil, and it's very important to maintain the correct relationships between grains, legumes, and roots said Verence, raising his voice. Also, I'm seriously considering clover. I should be interested to know what you think. Um, and I think we should do something about the pigs, Verence shouted. The Lancre stripe is very hardy, but we could really bring the poundage up by careful cross-breeding with, say, the Stowe saddleback. I'm having a boar sent up. Sean, will you stop blowing that damn trumpet? Sean lowered the trumpet. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a fanfare, Your Majesty. Yes, yes, but you're not supposed to go on. A few brief notes are a sufficiency. Verence sniffed. <laughs> and something's burning. Oh, blow! It's the carrots! Sean hurried away. That's better, said Verence. Where were we? 
Um, pigs, I think, said Magrat, but I really came to... It all comes down to the soil, said Verence. Get the soil right and everything else follows. Incidentally, I'm arranging the marriage for Midsummer Day. I thought you'd like that. Magrat's mouth formed an O. We could move it, of course, um, but not too much because of the harvest, said Verence. I've had some invitations sent out already to the more obvious guests, said Verence. "'And I thought it might be a nice idea to have some sort of fair or, or festival beforehand,' said Verence. "'I asked Boggies in Ankh-Morpork to send up their best dressmaker with a selection of materials, "'and one of the maids is about your size, and I think you'll be very pleased with the result,' said Verence. "'And Mr. Ironfoundson the dwarf came down the mountain specially to make the crown,' said Verence. "'And my brother and Mr. Vitola's men can't come because they're touring Clatch, apparently, "'but Huel the playsmith has written a special play for the wedding entertainment. "'Something even rustics can't muck up,' he says,' said Verence. "'So that's all settled, then?' said Verence. "'Finally, Magrat's voice returned from some distant apogee slightly hoarse. "'Aren't you supposed... "'To ask me?' she demanded. "'What?' "'Um, um, no, actually,' said Verence. "'No, kings don't ask. I, I looked it up. I I'm the king, you see, and you are, no offence, meant a subject. I don't have to ask.' Magrat's mouth opened for the scream of rage, but at last her brain jolted into operation. "'Yes,' it said. "'Of course you can yell at him and sweep away, and he'll probably come after you.' "'Very probably. Hmm. Maybe not that probably, because he might be a nice little man with gentle runny eyes, but he's also a king, and he's been looking things up. But very probably, quite probably. But do you want to bet the rest of your life? Isn't this what you really wanted anyway? Isn't this what you came here hoping for? Really?' Verence was looking at her with some concern. "'Is it the witching?' he said. You don't have to give that up entirely, of course. I've got a great respect for witches, and you can be a witch queen, although I think that means you have to wear rather revealing clothes and keep cats and give people poisoned apples. I read that somewhere. Uh, the witching's a problem, is it? No, Magrat mumbled. Uh, it's not that. Um, did, did you mention a crown?' Oh, you've got to have a crown, said Verence. Queens do. I, I looked it up. Her brain cut in again. Queen Magrat, it suggested. It held up the mirror of the imagination. You're not upset, are you? said Verence. What? Oh, no. Uh, me? Uh, no. Good. That's all sorted out, then. I think that just about covers everything, don't you? Um... Verence rubbed his hands together. "'We're doing some marvellous things with legumes,' he said, as if he hadn't just completely rearranged Magrat's life without consulting her. "'Beans. Peas. You know, nitrogen fixers. And marl and lime, of course. Scientific husbandry. Come and look at this.' He bounced away enthusiastically. "'You know,' he said, "'we could really make this kingdom work.' Magrat trailed after him. "'So?' That was all settled then. Not a proposal, just a statement. 
She hadn't been quite sure how the moment would be, even in the darkest hours of the night, but she'd had an idea that roses and, and sunsets and bluebirds might just possibly be involved. Clover had not figured largely. Beans and other leguminous nitrogen fixers were not a central feature. On the other hand, Magrat was, at the core, far more practical than most people believed, who saw no further than her vague smile and collection of more than three hundred pieces of occult jewellery, none of which worked. So this was how you got married to a king. It all got arranged for you. There were no white horses. The past flipped straight into the future, carrying you with it. Perhaps that was normal. Kings were busy people. Magrat's experience of marrying them was limited. "'Where are we going?' she said. "'The old rose garden.' "'Ah, well, this was more like it. "'Except that there weren't any roses. "'The walled garden had been stripped of its walks and arbours "'and was now waist-high in green stalks with white flowers. "'Bees were furiously at work in the blossoms.' "'Beans?' said Magrat. "'Yes, a specimen crop. "'I keep bringing the farmers up here to show them,' said Verence. "'He sighed. They, "'They nod and mumble and smile, "'but I'm afraid they just go off and do the same old things.' "'I know,' said Magrat. "'The same thing happened when I tried to give people lessons in natural childbirth.' Verence raised an eyebrow. "'Even to him the thought of Magrat giving lessons in childbirth "'to the fecund and teak-faced women of Lancre was slightly unreal.' "'Really? How had they been having babies before?' he said. "'Oh, any old way,' said Magrat. "'They looked at the little buzzing bean-field. "'Of course, when you're queen, you won't need to,' Verence began. "'It happened softly, almost like a kiss, as light as the touch of sunlight. "'There was no wind, only a sudden heavy calmness that made the ears pop.' The stems bent and broke and lay down in a circle. The bees roared and fled. The three witches arrived at the standing stone together. They didn't even bother with explanations. There were some things you know. "'In the middle of my bloody herbs,' said Granny Weatherwax. "'On the palace garden,' said Magrat. "'Poor little mite, and he was holding it up to show me to,' said Nanny Og. Granny Weatherwax paused. "'What are you talking about, Gither Og?' she said. "'Our Pusey was growing mustard and cress on a flannel for his nun,' said Nanny Og patiently. "'He shows it to me right enough, and just as I bends down and splat! Crop circle!' "'This,' said Granny Weatherwax, "'is serious. It's been years since they've been as bad as this. We all know what it means, don't we? What we've got—' Um, said Magrat, to do now is... Um, excuse me, said Magrat. There were some things you had to be told. Yes? I don't know what it means, said Magrat. I mean, old goody Wemper... May she rest in peace, the older witches chorused, told me once that the circles were dangerous, but she never said anything about why. The older witches shared a glance. Never told you about the dancers? said Granny Weatherwax. "'Never told you about the long man,' said Nanny Og. "'What dancers? You mean those old stones up on the moor?' "'All you need to know right now,' said Granny Weatherwax, "'is that we've got to put a stop to them.' "'What them?' Granny radiated innocence. "'The circles, of course,' she said. 
"'Oh, no,' said Magrat. "'I can tell by the way you said it. "'You said them as though it was some sort of curse. "'It wasn't just a them. "'It was a them with a capital V. "'The old witches looked awkward again. "'And who's the long man?' said Magrat. "'We do not,' said Granny, "'ever talk about the long man.' "'No harm in telling her about the dancers, at any rate,' mumbled Nanny Og. "'Yes, but, you know, I mean, she's Magrat,' said Granny. "'What's that supposed to mean?' Magrat demanded. "'You probably won't feel the same way about them, is what I'm saying,' said Granny. "'We're talking about the—' Nanny Og began. "'Don't name em. "'Yeah, r- right, sorry.' "'Mind you, a circle might not find the dancers,' said Granny, "'but we can always hope. Could be just random.' "'But if one opens up inside the—' Magrat snapped. "'You just do this on purpose. You talk in code the whole time. You always do this. "'But you won't be able to when I'm queen.' That stopped them. Nanny Og put her head on one side. "'Oh,' she said, "'young Verence popped the question, then.' Yes. When's the happy event? said Granny Weatherwax, icily. Two weeks' time, said Magrat. Midsummer day. Bad choice. Bad choice, said Nanny Og. Shortest night of the year. Githa Og. And you'll be my subjects, said Magrat, ignoring this. And you'll have to curtsy and everything. She knew as soon as she said this that it was stupid, that anger drove her on. "'Granny Weatherwax's eyes narrowed. "'Hmm,' she said. "'We will. Will we?' "'Yes, and if you don't,' said Magrat, "'you can get thrown in prison.' "'My word,' said Granny. "'Deary, deary me. I wouldn't like that. "'I wouldn't like that at all.' "'All three of them knew that the castle dungeons, "'which in any case had never been its most notable feature, "'were now totally unused.' Verence II was the most amiable monarch in the history of Lancre. His subjects regarded him with a sort of good-natured contempt that is the fate of all those who work quietly and conscientiously for the public good. Besides, Verence would rather cut his own leg off than put a witch in prison, since it had saved trouble in the long run and probably be less painful. "'Queen Magrat, eh?' said Nanny Og, trying to lighten the atmosphere a bit. "'Caw! Well, the old castle could do with a bit of lightning up.' "'Oh, it'll lighten up all right,' said Granny. "'Well, anyway, I don't have to bother with this sort of thing,' said Magrat. "'Whatever it is, is your business. "'I just shan't have time, I'm sure.' "'I'm sure you can please yourself, you going-to-be majesty,' said Granny Weatherwax. <laughs> said Magrat. "'I can. You can ju- you can... "'You can damn well find another witch for Lancre, all right? "'Another soppy girl to do all the dreary work "'and never be told anything "'and be talked over the head of the whole time. "'I've got better things to do.' "'Better things than being a witch?' said Granny. "'Magrat walked into it. "'Yes.' "'Oh, dear,' murmured Nanny. "'Oh, well, then I expect you'll be wanting to be off.' said Granny, her voice like knives. Back to your palace, I'll be bound. Yes, 
Magrat picked up her broomstick. Granny's arm shot out very fast and grabbed the handle. Oh, no, she said. No, no, you don't. Queens ride around in golden coaches and whatnot, each to their own. Brooms is for witches. Now, now, come on, you two, began Nanny Og, one of nature's mediators. Anyway, someone can be a queen and a witch. Who cares, said Magrat, dropping the broomstick. I don't have to bother with that sort of thing any more. She turned, clutched at her dress and ran. She became a figure outlined against the sunset. You daft old bosom, Esme, said Nanny Og, just because she's getting wed. You know what she'd say if we told her, said Granny Weatherwax. She'd get it all wrong. The gentry, circles. She'd say it was nice. Best for her if she's out of it. They ain't been active for years and years, said Nanny. We'll need some help. I mean, when did you last go up to the dancers? You know how it is, said Granny. When it's so quiet, you don't think about them. We ought to have kept them cleared. True. We'd better get up first thing tomorrow, said Nanny Og. Yes. Better bring a sickle too. There isn't much of the kingdom of Lancra where you could drop a football and not have it roll away from you. Most of it is moorland and steeply forested hillside, giving way to sharp and ragged mountains where even trolls wouldn't go, and valleys so deep that they have to pipe the sunlight in. There was an overgrown path up to the moorland where the dancers stood, even though it was only a few miles from the town. Hunters tracked up there sometimes, but only by accident. It wasn't that the hunting was bad, but, well... There were the stones. Stone circles were common enough everywhere in the mountains. Druids built them as weather computers, and since it was always cheaper to build a new 33 megalith circle than upgrade an old slow one, there were generally plenty of ancient ones around. No druids ever came near the dancers. The stones weren't shaped. They weren't even positioned in any particularly significant way. There wasn't any of that stuff about the sun striking the right stone at dawn on the right day. Someone had just dragged eight red rocks into a rough circle. But the weather was different. People said that if it started to rain, it always began to fall inside the circle a few seconds after it had started outside, as if the rain was coming from further away. If clouds crossed the sun, it'd be a moment or two before the light faded inside the circle. William Scrope is going to die in a couple of minutes. It has to be said that he shouldn't have been hunting deer out of season, and especially not the fine stag he was tracking, and certainly not a fine stag of the ram-top red species, which is officially endangered, although not as endangered right now as William Scrope. It was ahead of him, pushing through the bracken, making so much noise that a blind man could have tracked it. Scrope waded through after it. Mist was still hanging around the stones, not in a blanket, but in long, raggedy strings. The stag reached the circle now and stopped. It trotted back and forth once or twice and then looked up at Scrope. He raised his crossbow. The stag turned and leapt between the stones. There were only confused impressions from then on. The first was of distance. The circle was a few yards across. It shouldn't suddenly appear to contain so much distance. And the next was of speed. Something was coming out of the circle, a white dot growing bigger and bigger. He knew he'd aimed the bow, but it was whirled out of his hands as the thing struck, and suddenly there was only the sensation of peace and the brief remembrance of pain. William Scrope died, 
William Scrope looked through his hands at the crushed bracken. The reason that it was crushed was that his own body was sprawled upon it. His newly deceased eyes surveyed the landscape. There are no delusions for the dead. Dying is like waking up after a really good party, when you have one or two seconds of innocent freedom before you recollect all of the things you did last night, which seemed so logical and hilarious at the time, and then you remember the really amazing thing you did with a lampshade and two balloons, which had them in stitches, and now you realise you're going to have to look at a lot of people in the eye today, and you're sober now, and so are they, but you can both remember. Oh, he said. The landscape flowed around the stones. It was all so obvious now, when you saw it from the outside. Obvious. No walls, only doors. No edges, only corners. William Scrope? Yes? If you would please step this way. Are you a hunter? I like to think I am a picker-up of unconsidered trifles. Death grinned, hopefully. Scrope's post-physical brow furrowed. What, like... Sherry? Custard? That sort of thing? Death sighed. Metaphors were wasted on people. Sometimes he felt that no one took him seriously enough. I take away people's lives is what I mean, he said testily. Where to? We shall have to see, won't we? William Scrope was already fading into the mist. That thing that got me? Yes. I thought they were extinct. No. They just went away. Where to? Death extended a bony digit. Over there. Magrat hadn't originally intended to move into the palace before the wedding because people would talk. Admittedly, a dozen people lived in the palace, which had a huge number of rooms, but she'd still be under the same roof, and that was good enough, or bad enough. That was before. Now her blood was sizzling. Let people talk. She had a pretty good idea which people they'd be, too. Which person, anyway. Which person? <laughs> Let them talk all they liked. She got up early and packed her possessions, such as they were. It wasn't exactly her cottage, and most of the furniture went with it. Witches came and went, but witches' cottages went on forever, usually with the same thatch they started with. But she did own the set of magical knives, the mystic-coloured cords, the assorted grails and crucibles, and a box full of rings, necklaces and bracelets heavy with the hermetic symbols of a dozen religions. She tipped them all into a sack. Then there were the books. Goody Wamper had been something of a bookworm among witches. There were almost a dozen. She hesitated about the books, and finally she let them stay on the shelves. There was the statutory pointy hat. She'd never liked it anyway, and had always avoided wearing it into the sack with it. She looked around, wild-eyed, until she spotted the small cauldron in the ingle-nook. That'd do. Into the sack with that, and then tie the neck with string. On the way up to the palace, she crossed the bridge over Lancre Gorge and tossed the sack into the river. It bobbed for a moment in the strong current and then sank. She'd secretly hoped for a string of multicoloured bubbles or even a hiss, but it just sank, just as if it wasn't anything very important. Another world, another castle. The elf galloped over the frozen moat, steam billowing from its black horse and from the thing it carried over its neck. It rode up the steps and into the hall itself, where the queen sat amidst her dreams. My lord Lankin? A stag. It was still alive. Elves were skilled at leaving things alive, often for weeks. 
From out of the circle? Yes, lady. It's weakening. Did I not tell you? How long? How long? Soon, soon. What went through the other way? The elf tried to avoid her face. Your pet, lady. No doubt it won't go far, the queen laughed. No doubt it will have an amusing time. It rained briefly at dawn. There's nothing nastier to walk through than shoulder-high wet bracken. Well, there is. There are an uncountable number of things nastier to walk through, especially if they're shoulder-high. But here and now, thought Nanny Og, it was hard to think of more than one or two. They hadn't landed inside the dancers, of course. Even birds detoured rather than cross that airspace. Migrating spiders on gossamer threads floating half a mile up curved round it. Clouds split in two and flowed around it. Mist hung around the stones. Sticky, damp mist. Nanny hacked vaguely at the clinging bracken with her sickle. "'You there, Esme?' she muttered. Granny Weatherwax's head rose from a clump of bracken a few feet away. "'There's been things going on,' she said in a cold and deliberate tone. "'Like what?' "'All the bracken and weeds is trampled around the stones. I reckon someone's been... dancing.' Nanny Og gave this the same consideration as would a nuclear physicist who'd just been told that someone was banging two bits of subcritical uranium together to keep warm. They never, she said. They have. And another thing. It was hard to imagine what other thing there could be, but Nanny Og said, yes, anyway. Someone got killed up here. Oh, no moaned Nanny Og. Not inside the circle, too. No, don't be daft. It was outside. A tall man. He had one leg longer than the other and a beard. He was probably a hunter. How'd you know all that? I just trod on him. The sun rose through the mists. The morning rays were already caressing the ancient stones of Unseen University. Premier College of Wizardry, 500 miles away. Not that many wizards were aware of this. For most of the wizards of Unseen University, their lunch was the first meal of the day. They were not, by and large, breakfast people. The Arch-Chancellor and the Librarian were the only two who knew what the dawn looked like from the front, and they tended to have the entire campus to themselves for several hours. The Librarian was always up early because he was an orangutan, and they're naturally early risers. Although in his case he didn't bellow a few times to keep other males off his territory, he just unlocked the library and fed the books. And Mustrum Ridcully, the current Arch-Chancellor, liked to wander around the sleepy buildings, nodding to the servants and leaving little notes for his subordinates, usually designed for no other purpose than to make it absolutely clear that he was up and attending to the business of the day while they were still fast asleep. This happens all the time. Everywhere in the multiverse, even on cold planets awash with liquid methane, no one knows why it is, but in any group of employed individuals, the only naturally early riser is always the office manager, who will always leave reproachful little notes, or as it might be engraved helium crystals, on the desks of their subordinates. In fact, the only place this does not happen very often is the world Xyrix, and this is only because Xyrix has 18 sons, and it is only possible to be an early riser there once every 1,789.6 years. But even then, once every 1,789.6 years, resonating to some strange universal signal, 
small-minded employers slither down to the office with a tentacle full of small, reproachful, etched, frimped shells at the ready. Today, however, he had something else on his mind, more or less literally. It was round, there was a healthy growth all around it. He could swear it hadn't been there yesterday. He turned his head this way and that, squinting at the reflection in the mirror of the other mirror he was holding above his head. The next member of staff to wake up after Ridcully and the librarian was the bursar, not because he was a naturally early riser, but because by around ten o'clock the Arch-Chancellor's very limited supply of patience came to an end, and he would stand at the bottom of the stairs and shout, Bursar! until the bursar appeared. In fact, it happened so often that the bursar, a natural neurovore, he lived on his nerves, frequently found that he'd got up and dressed himself in his sleep several minutes before the bellow. On this occasion he was upright and fully clothed, and halfway to the door before his eyes snapped open. Ridcully never wasted time on small talk. It was always large talk or nothing. "'Yes, Arch-Chancellor,' said the bursar, glumly. The Arch-Chancellor removed his hat. "'What about this, then?' he demanded. "'Well, uh, um, what, Arch-Chancellor? "'This, man, this!' Close to panic, the bursar stared desperately at the top of Ridcully's head. "'The what? Oh!' The bald spot? I have not got a bald spot. Um, then, um, I mean, it wasn't there yesterday. Oh, well, um. At a certain point, something always snapped inside the bursar, and he couldn't stop himself. Of course, these things do happen, and my grandfather always swore by a mixture of honey and horse manure. He rubbed it on every day. I'm not going bald. A tick started to dance across the bursar's face. The words started to come out by themselves without the apparent intervention of his brain. And then he got this device with a glass rod and, 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 and you rubbed it with a silk cloth. And, I mean, it, 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 it's ridiculous. My family have never gone bald, except for one of my aunts. And, and then he'd collect morning dew and wash his head and... Uh, and... Ridcully subsided. He was not an unkind man. What are you taking for it at the moment? He muttered. Dried, uh, dried, 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 stuttered the bursar. The old dried frog pills, right? Left hand pocket? Okay, right. Swallow? They stared at one another for a moment. The bursar sagged. Much better now, Arch-Chancellor, thank you. "'Something's definitely happening, Bursa. I can feel it in my water. "'Anything you say, Arch-Chancellor?' "'Bursa? Yes, Arch-Chancellor? "'You ain't a member of some secret society or something, are you?' "'Me? No, Arch-Chancellor.' "'Then it'd be a damn good idea to take your underpants off your head.' "'Know him?' said Granny Weatherwax. "'Nanny Og knew everyone in Lancre, even the forlorn thing on the bracken.' "'It's William Scrope from over Slice Way,' she said. "'One of three brothers. "'He married that Pallyard girl, remember? "'The one with the air-cooled teeth?' "'I hope the poor woman's got some respectable black clothes,' "'said Granny Weatherwax. "'Looks like he's been stabbed,' said Nanny. "'She turned the body over gently but firmly. "'Corpses, as such, didn't worry her. "'Witches generally act as layers out of the dead "'as well as midwives.' 
There were plenty of people in Lankra for whom Nanny Og's face had been the first and last thing they'd ever seen, which had probably made all the bit in the middle seem quite uneventful by comparison. Right through, she said. Stabbed right through. Blimey. Who'd do a thing like that? Both the witches turned to look at the stones. I don't know what, but I knows where it come from, said Granny. Now Nanny Og could see that the bracken all around the stones was indeed well trodden down and quite brown. I'm going to get to the bottom of this, said Granny. You'd better not go into... I knows exactly where I should go, thank you. There were eight stones in the dancers. Three of them had names. Granny walked around the ring until she reached the one known as the Piper. She removed a hat pin from among the many that riveted her pointy hat to her hair and held it about six inches from the stone. Then she let it go and watched what happened. She went back to Nanny. There's still power there, she said. Not much, but the ring is holding. But who'd be daft enough to come up here and dance round the stones, said Nanny Og. And then, as a treacherous thought drifted across her mind, she added, Magrat's been away with us the old time. We shall have to find out, said Granny, setting her face in a grim smile. Now, help me up with the poor man. Nanny Og bent to the task. Oh, he's heavy. We could have done with young Magrat up here. No, flighty, said Granny Weatherwax, head easily turned. Nice girl, though. But Soppy, she thinks you can lead your life as if fairy stories work and folk songs are really true. Not that I don't wish her every happiness. Hope she does all right as queen, said Nanny. We taught her everything she knows, said Granny Weatherwax. Yeah, said Nanny Og, as they disappeared into the bracken. Do you think maybe... What? Do you think maybe we ought to have taught her everything we know? It'd take too long... Yeah, right. It took a while for letters to get as far as the Arch-Chancellor. The post tended to be picked up from the university gates by anyone who happened to be passing, and then left lying on a shelf somewhere, or used as a pipe lighter or a bookmark, or in the case of the librarian, as bedding. This one had only taken two days, and was quite intact, apart from a couple of cup rings and a bananary fingerprint. It arrived on the table, along with the other post, while the faculty were at breakfast. The dean opened it with a spoon. "'Anyone here know where Lancre is?' he said. "'Why?' said Ridcully, looking up sharply. "'Some king's getting married and wants us to come.' "'Oh, dear. Oh, dear,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'Some tin-pot king gets wed, and he wants us to come.' "'It's up in the mountains,' said the Arch-Chancellor quietly. "'Good trout-fishing in those parts, as I recall. "'My word, Lancre, good grief. "'Hadn't thought about the place in years. "'You know there's glacier lakes up there "'where the fish have never seen a rod. Hmm. Lancre, yes.' "'And it's far too far,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'Ridcully wasn't listening. "'And, and there's deer, thousands of head of deer, and elk.' "'Wolves all over the place. Mountain lions, too, I shouldn't wonder. "'I heard that ice-eagles have been seen up there again, too.' "'His eyes gleamed. "'There's only half a dozen of them left,' he said. "'Mustrum Ridcully did a lot for rare species. "'For one thing, he kept them rare. "'It's the back of beyond,' said the dean, "'right off the edge of the map.' 
"'Used to stay with my uncle up there in the, in the, in the holidays,' said Ridcully, his eyes misty with distance. "'Great days I had up there. Great days. The summer's up there, and the skies are deeper blue than anywhere else. It's very—and the grass. And—' He returned abruptly from the landscapes of memory. "'Got to go, then,' he said. "'Duty calls. Head of state getting married. Important occasion. Got to have a few wizards there. Look of the thing. Noblesse obligée.' "'Well, I'm not going,' said the dean. "'It's not natural, the countryside. Far too many trees. Never could stand it.' "'The bursar could do with an outing,' said Ridcully. "'Seems a bit jumpy just lately. Can't imagine why.' He leaned forward to look along the high table. "'Bursar!' The bursar dropped his spoon into his oatmeal. "'See what I mean?' said Ridcully. "'Bundler nerves the whole time.' "'I was saying you could do with some fresh air, bursar,' he nudged the dean heavily. "'Hope he's not going off his rocker, poor fella,' he said, "'in what he chose to believe was a whisper. "'Spends too much time indoors, if you get my drift.' "'The dean, who went outdoors about once a month, shrugged his shoulders. "'I expect you'd like a little time away from the university, eh?' "'said the arch-chancellor, nodding and grimacing madly. "'Peace and quiet? Healthy country living?' I, 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 "'I should like that very much, Arch-Chancellor,' said the bursar, hope rising in his face like an autumn mushroom. "'Good man, good man, you shall come with me,' said Ridcully, beaming. The bursar's expression froze. "'Got to be someone else, too,' said Ridcully. "'Volunteers, anyone?' The wizards, townies to a man, bent industriously over their food. They always bent industriously over their food in any case, but this time they were doing it to avoid catching Ridcully's eye. "'What about the librarian?' said the lecturer in recent runes, throwing a random victim to the wolves. There was a sudden babble of relieved agreement. "'Good choice,' said the dean. "'Just the thing for him. Countryside, trees, and, 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 and trees.' "'Mountain air,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'Yes, he's been looking peaky lately.' "'said the reader in invisible writings. "'It'd be it'd be a real treat for him,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'Home away from home, I expect,' said the dean. "'Trees all over the place.' "'They all looked expectantly at the arch-chancellor. "'He, he doesn't wear clothes,' said Ridcully, "'and he goes, ook, all the time. "'He does wear the old green robe thing,' said the dean. "'Only when he's had a bath.' Ridcully rubbed his beard. In fact, he quite liked the librarian, who never argued with him and always kept himself in shape, even if that shape was a pear shape. It was the right shape for an orangutan. The thing about the librarian was that no one noticed he was an orangutan any more, unless a visitor to the university happened to point it out, in which case someone would say, Oh yes, some kind of magical accident, wasn't it? Pretty sure it was something like that. One minute human, next minute an ape. "'Funny thing, really. Can't remember what he looked like before. "'I mean, he must have been human, I suppose. "'Always thought of him as an ape, really. "'It's more him. "'And indeed, it had been an accident among the potent and magical books of the University Library "'that had, as it were, bounced the librarian's genotype down the evolutionary tree "'and back up a different branch, with the significant difference "'that now he could hang on to it upside down with his feet. "'Oh, oh, all right.' said the Arch-Chancellor, but he's got to wear something during the ceremony, if only for the sake of the poor bride.
End of CD 1